To me, the X-Men became about, it was actually about adults versus children. Because I felt that the whole thrust of the X-Men was actually about the generational thing, that people dislike their children because new ways of looking at things and adults kind of don't like that because it's threatening to them. So I saw the X-Men as being about that and basically that's where we took it in that direction. Basically about the war between adults and youth. I don't know don't look at me. I'm looking at you. You got yourself into that. <laughs> I'm looking at you for validation, Stan. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs>
thinking back, I know Whiteley's art didn't quite appeal to me so much back then, but I was willing to, to roll with it um, because I, because I, I had already liked Morrison stuff that I'd read before. So I was willing to, to, to stick with it, even though uh, some of his art didn't quite appeal to me so much. Looking back on it though, what I really love about this cover and about what Quitely did in general is if you had these characters completely in silhouette, you could still tell them all apart. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. That's one of the things I love about this is that like, so talking about Cyclops and you're right, that whole visual of the, the one eye type thing, it works, it looks so awesome. Um, and what I really love about his Cyclops in particular is he draws him tall and thin, right? There's a reason that Scott's nickname is Slim, right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of gone away. Cause you look at like, you know some of the other artistic depictions over the years, you know, like Jim Lee is probably the most famous example where he draws him as like really thick and muscular and like very standard superhero proportions when he's not supposed to be like that. Like the whole thing about Cyclops is he's not like a bodybuilder type. He doesn't have superhuman strength. He fights by using his optic blast from a distance. And I love that Quitely did that, that he, that he depicted Cyclops as being like this tall and thin guy. Whereas Wolverine, you know, it's very short and stocky. You can tell if you have these guys standing next to each other and they're in darkness, you can tell which one is which, right? He, That's one he, of the things that I've really always liked about the X-Men, right? That um, there is a diversity amongst the cast, mm -hmm. but also amongst body types. And it's it's not really as um, distinctive as it, as it should be, but Cyclops is called Slim as a nickname for exactly the reason that you say he's not super muscular. He's not, you know, he doesn't look like Chris Hemsworth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Wolverine should be really short and hairy. Mm -hmm. And um, that that is depicted by Quietly really, really well. And uh, I, I think that you're correct with the silhouettes. You know exactly who each character is. The other thing that I got from it was that it was such a slim down cast. Mm -hmm. right there was really only there's only five of them professor x is never really thought of as an x-man right he's he's on the outs of that right but um so generally there's only five actual x-men that's so small even today we generally have you always have more than five right mm -hmm. especially for this time period because this was coming off a time period when the x-men had like you know like seven members on two teams and each mm -hmm. team had like seven members so yeah At going least. with yeah so going with this such a and that was the trend going back since uh 91 when you know uh the x-men number one launched right that was the era of the two teams and that ushered in this era of like there was like 14 characters living at the mansion and they're all alternating between different books and this really just you know completely stripped it down to basics uh, I think quietly is an acquired taste and mm -hmm. he certainly was for me when I first started reading it like um, his the way he does faces is can be off-putting mm -hmm. but it's something that grew on me a lot and stayed and now I'm a big fan really um, a, a, after being exposed to his work here I'm yeah. not sure. It, I'm not sure if it grew on me or he got better. Mm -hmm. Could be both. I think it's a little bit of both because I think if you compare E is for Extinction to um, Rioted Xavier's, there's a definite evolution in his artwork. 
Like, I think he got a lot better with drawing faces in that arc. But yeah, I, but I'm with you, uh, Patrick. The the faces really, even now, they, you know, they, I, I don't really like the way he draws faces. They all, there's kind of a sameness to a lot of the faces with the exception of Professor X. I think he draws Professor X perfectly. But I think the other ones, like when he draws like, you know, Gene's face or Emma or Scott, I don't feel that. And Wolverine, it could get away with too, because he's like, you know, like Oscar said, he's supposed to be short and ugly. So it makes sense. But, but yeah, with, with Gene and Emma and Scott, I don't really think the faces really, the, even now they don't really, I'm not really pretty sold on them too much. And it's especially uh, prevalent in this first issue, right? Mm -hmm. That's when it, it, it's uh, kind of at its lowest. I remember when I, when I first read it, I was like, wow, this story is great. I hate the art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I hate the art, but the story was so good that I was like, I'm going to stick with it. But uh, the faces, you're right, they are ugly. They do kind of look, the women I find especially kind of looked the same. Mm -hmm. Men did look a bit different. Like when you're reading the book, you know, the, the Trask character looks very different from Cyclops, who looks very right. different from Wolverine, who looks very different from Xavier. But the female characters, which is just Jean and Emma and Cassandra Nova, they, well, not Cassandra Nova because she looks like Xavier, but Jean mm -hmm. and Emma, it, just their costumes look different, right? Yeah. Their actual faces could be the same. Oh, that is, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is one of the things I like about the cover is how, you know, Jean and Emma, you look at them and they basically have the same body type. But I do like these, you know, costumes aside, there are these, there's these subtle variation in the way he draws the hair. Right? Mm -hmm. I do think that was a nice little touch on the cover yeah. there. Um, but also going back to the, the opening page, um, you know what, I, I just realized this, is that the last time there was probably a really big, massive change on this level with the X-Men was probably the Outback era. So I wonder if that's why Morrison <laughs> opened this scene up in Australia. It's kind of like a callback to that. I think when you go back to it, it was the, you, this would have been drawn in the year 2000s. And that was when the Olympics were in Sydney. Oh, okay. And I think that might have had a bit of a... Um, effect on it as well because i know the extreme x-men which was written by claremont exactly the same time they visited mm -hmm. sydney after the second after the first arc of that yeah. series as well so i always thought that that was the sort of um sydney was in the zeitgeist of the global community because of the the olympics there well, that's a good point yeah i didn't even think about that um, and we also had you know when the when it was the year 2000 which is a we think back to it now you don't really think much of it but i at the time, the world was turning into the year 2000. It was a big thing. And I think uh, Sydney's the first country that gets the fireworks or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I came with a bit of a symbolism for that as well. But you're right. It is the Outback era attached to it. I spoke previously about how I don't really have a fondness for that. But um, I wonder if there was more thought behind, well, let's just pick Sydney out of all of the cities Mm -hmm. or Australia out of all the countries and stuff they could have chosen they chose that and it seems pretty random maybe there was more thought put to it I just I the one thing I will say about quietly faces is I enjoy how expressive and emotive they are mm -hmm. like I think he's able to pack in a lot of story and feeling with the way he draws faces. Like I think with some artists, it's sort of hard to tell or distinguish like characters, different emotional states, or like they could be saying something in the dialogue, right. even though their faces are sort of inconsistent with what they're saying they're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, 
but quietly i think does a very good job of making his faces and their expressions consistent with what they're supposed to be doing and feeling in that panel there's also this feeling of movement in his yes artwork. like i i look yes. at this like this opening page with um you've got you know cyclops blasting the severed sentinel's head and wolverine you know tearing into the sentinel's back and it's like you I, you know i'm staring at this page on the screen here and it and i can almost see the smoke moving and and it's it's something about his artwork is very kinetic in that way mm -hmm. the coloring was really good too yes yeah the coloring really makes the art pop especially in that first page you know the the, the blue coming out of the back of the sentinel where wolverine's scratching into it mm -hmm. the, the the blast of cyclops's um ruby quartz blast it's not just plain thick red through the whole way through you know it's got mm. that white going through which gives it that intensity um i think the colorist needs to get a big props for so yeah so i think that is who um franco is i think franco is the is a colorist on this either that either him or um hamerlin is probably so uh so that's that's that credit there so anyway um but i love this opening page because this tells you exactly who wolverine and cyclops are right in one image Right, you've got Wolverine just going berserker on this Sentinel's back, and Cyclops on the ground just very cool and just being like, "Wolverine, you can probably stop doing that now." Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're right; it is a good encapsulation of both of their characters, and I think Morrison was really great at doing. And and this run, we'll we'll see as we go through. The first page is always just a big shot like this and a very short, sharp dialogue. Mm -hmm. yeah. one sharp line that it just encapsulates everything that you need to know in the rest of the picture i never thought about how that does show their characters but especially cyclops right he's just standing very still mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. juxtaposed with wolverine who's very animated and moving like a, in a frenzy yeah it is such the perfect is the perfect introduction to these two characters um and then right after that we jump into uh cassandra nova showing donald trask this and this is another example of this artwork, right? Just feeling very kinetic, like this scene of ne the the Homo sapiens slaughtering Neanderthals. And I, I did you so to go back to when you say like it's kinetic. I agree, and I think the way he depicts skin and like muscle underneath it mm -hmm. really contributes to that. Like, yes, I think he draws his faces a bit doughy in parts but i think that that's good because it, it gives a sense of like you know making it feel more organic and mm -hmm. and there's a lot more movement to it and i also love this uh splash page i was mentioning to to patrick um before before oscar jumped into the chat that i had this this uh splash this credits page as a poster and i'm I wish I still had it and I wish I could, or I wish I could find it again, but I haven't been able to because it is such an awesome design. It's funny you say that, like it is an awesome design and it is a really cool way to introduce the characters. But I remember when I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, that's such a waste of two pages. <laughs> that could have been two pages of story um, that added to it. But now when I read back through it, it's, it's good to have an introduction page. It's almost like the the start of when you're watching a TV show and it has mm -hmm. the, each character turns around and sort of smiles and it has the name of each character. Right. It, it's really, really cool to have. 
they didn't need to put Cyclops, you know, uh, optic blast, Jean mm. Grey, telekinetic, Emma Frost, you know, psychic diamond skin. It tells you everything you need to know in the picture. Yeah. One of the things I especially like is I love how quietly drew Jean's powers in this one, right? Like this like drop of water and she's like separating it by molecule. Like that is just such a, there's so much detail in just that panel. It's such a great, great image. Is that meant to be a drop of water? I I think it is. Whatever it is, like it's just like huh. separating it. It just looks so cool. Okay. I, I always thought it was a watch, but it could be water. Oh, you're right. It could be looking at it closer now. It could be a watch. But either but, way, whatever it is, it, it does it gets, just look awesome. But it does get the point across, though, mm -hmm. of like, you know, this is her powers. This is what she does. Yeah. So. And um, and the introduction to the to the X-Men here. One of the things I love here is these are just the again, going back to the how he's able to just very quickly introduce these characters. Right. There's no mention of Gene being a telekinetic. Right. It's just like he she asked Beast if he wants a drink and then she just, you know, summons it over with her telekinesis. That's how they they show her powers. Mm -hmm. Well, they say a good writer shows and doesn't tell. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. Morrison was the expert at that. He he really is, uh, you know, that that's like a perfect example. There's no need for the the footnote to say Jean Grey telekinetic can move things with the power of her mind. Right, or or for her to say like, which happened a lot in some of the some of the older comics where they'd be like, Yo, I'll, I'll use my I'll use my telekinesis. I can easily summon the soda with my telekinesis or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the, the running gag of the focused totality of my psychic yeah, exactly. powers. <laughs> as much as I love Psylocke, that does annoy me when, yeah. when they would have that there. And I think they used to start to say it so much just to take the piss out of it mm -hmm. itself. It became like a long running gag. But um, this was the first, there were a lot of changes that came with New X-Men and this issue in particular, because it's the first one, um, there are no footnotes in Morrison's run. No. And it was kind of the end of footnotes. And the other thing it was the end of was speech bubbles. Uh, Not speech thought bubbles. bubbles. Thought yeah, bubbles. Yeah. The thought bubbles are gone now. And this was the start of that. Yeah, it was a much more, this was a, this was a trend that was happening a lot in, in, uh, in comics at the time was they were getting away from, from thought bubbles with the exception of doing them as in solo series, they, they'd start doing, they, they shifted over to doing them as captions instead. Um, but for, for team books and stuff like that, they really kind of issued them. And, and yeah, the footnotes were completely gone. This was, uh, this was, it was this attempt to be more cinematic in, in comics at the time, which, uh, I'm, I'm a mixed opinion of it. Uh, at the time I thought it was really cool. Now looking back on it, I do, I understand the, the, um, the complaints from from people who are more old school about you know getting rid about getting rid of the thought bubbles is limiting the medium because it's not it's not a film medium so you don't have to have those same limits as film does mm. but you can have the thoughts put in i i prefer the thoughts put in footnote uh, in the the caption boxes rather mm. than the the thought bubbles but um i did remember feeling really jarred by thinking wow what are they what are they thinking but it made Morrison and, and all writers really show us rather than tell us mm -hmm. and that makes for a better reading experience yeah and going with that showing and telling thing right when he talks about when Beast talks about I do a lot of leaping around that's a good way of getting across this information in a way that's organically makes sense right 
He says, right. you know, I want a diet soda because I, I don't want to get fat. I do a lot of leaping around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the way they showcase his, you know, the problems he has with his, his fingers and, you know, his super strength when he just pulls open the whole top part of the can, like just these little artistic touches. He does such a good job with that. I really liked the depiction of Cerebra. Yes. I, um, I think it's a little bit on the nose that they changed the name from Cerebro to Cerebra. I remember being like, oh, that's dumb. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of cool, actually. Now, now I think it's kind of cool. But at the time, I thought it was dumb. But I did like how the thought condensation comes up mm -hmm. and people can see what we can all see what Xavier is seeing as well. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's again going back to the whole cinematic quality. And this the 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 page where Cerebra, it it almost seems like like a cloud that's over Xavier's head. It's very well done. Um, is this so I know in the past he's put that helmet on a lot, but it's just the first time we've seen what it looks like. Like I think it is, right? Like we we haven't actually seen how like how the detection thing works when he puts it on. Um, I think so. I'm not sure. Uh, but and this is like the first time that the helmet is a complete helmet. Like up until right. up until now, it's always just been like in the movie too, where it's just like mm -hmm. the the three the little you know headpiece type thing. But this this is and this is the design that then comes back in um, House of X: Powers of Ten, where you know he's walking around wearing the Cerebra helmet all the time. Mm -hmm. Um. I, I think I thought it was also a nice visual to sort of drive home the point of sort of the other animating themes of the run, which is there's so much more of them now. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot more mutants being born. And look, he, here it is. Here they are. Yeah. The whole thing about the the new mutant baby boom that, that Beast mm -hmm. mentions. And, and taken, I can't give Morrison the full credit for Cere Cerebra and how it looks because that was another thing that was ripped straight from the film, right? Uh, the in the films it was just it was that giant dome room, but the helmet was still like the old fashioned helmet. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the Are you talking about the way it looks when they're finding mutants? The way it looks when they're finding mutants. Oh, okay. They, yeah, yeah. That everybody else can see what he's seeing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. Was that was from the movie, I think. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Now I think about it, it was uh, that was in X two. I think is when they. Mm -hmm. Um. So then, uh, this page two of Wolverine and Cyclops in the Blackbird, and again, I just I love um, how Ugly John is acting here. Like this is the the sense that he the X Men, right? He's looking at them like they're celebrities, and that makes such so much sense in the mutant community that they would be seen this way. I. And I think this is the first time I recall sort of Logan's healing factor operating in such a visceral way. Like I, like in the past, it's, you know, they, they tell you it's working, but I think this is the first time I can recall where like you can actually see him bleeding and like the skin is knitting together. And I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, like him picking the bullet out of his mm -hmm. neck that was... <laughs> Before and, it heals around him, you know, he's like, oh, I've got to get yeah. this out. There's another one I've got to get out. And like, also you get the sense that he stinks, right? Because the burning mm -hmm. flesh smells. Mm -hmm. Like and, this, uh, I feel like this had more gore than like that scene where the adamantium was ripped from his body. Oh, yeah, there which, was no blood which, in that scene at all. Which you would think would be a lot messier mm -hmm. than 
but th- this this looks a lot more visceral than that scene did. Mm-hmm. But I also love the the no smoking please Wolverine line. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this is about the time they stopped the ca- the comic book characters from smoking, right? I think uh, that was introduced th- this same issue from now. This on. was around this was around this time. I'm not sure if it was specifically this issue, but I know it was this time period because mm-hmm. um uh yeah because that was a uh, Casada's edict because I think his father died of lung cancer and that was yeah really- and he was like I'm not having any kids start smoking because I see Wolverine smoking I think it's right right yeah yeah and thank god you know that was another really uh, another really good thing that he did it's crazy to think that you know they were having I couldn't imagine now a superhero aimed at children smoking Mm -hmm. cigarettes and acting like it's a cool thing to do yeah I don't I kind of missed Wolverine with the cigars though myself (laughs) really yeah yeah i kind of i always like like one of my favorite scenes in uh in x2 is when uh he walks into cerebro and you know and um and the professor tells him to put the cigar out and he puts it out on his hand i don't know that image is wolverine with the stogie in his mouth i just always kind of like that image that is pretty cool that is pretty cool when he that's pretty badass right to Mm -hmm. uh just put it out in your hands yeah you you don't want to damage anything um, but before we move on to this, like the Blackbird also got a facelift. Like, what do you think about? And a name change I, too, because it was a name uh, change. Yeah. Now it's called the X-Wing. Right. It, it's been that SR-71 for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, he also gives them a, a brand new jet there. What, what do you two think of that design? I like it. I like that it's got the the X-shaped cockpit glass. And I like that even the 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 way the ing- the wings are shaped as well mm-hmm. just has that subtle invocation of the X shape. I I, li- I think it's a really nice update. I, it I looks agree. Like more of a... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Patrick. No, I was gonna say it, it reminds me more of like a spaceship than an airplane, which yeah. may have been an intentional thing. I like the visualization of the red mm-hmm. with the with the coloring to mention that again because uh, it it really shows you exactly where you are just with that one hue of red that goes over it you know that they're in the that they're in the plane mm-hmm. and i also love wolverine's line here about the the sentinels about you know the hardware's getting old 5000 rounds of live ammunition two death rays four independent rolls royce engines 3 million dollars worth of ram 5 minutes later it's rust on my knuckles like just, and it's kind of like um it's kind of a hint to what we're going to have, what's going to happen next with the Sentinels, right? This whole right, idea like, of like the, the old, these giant, you know, cartoon robots that are fun to blow up, which is what the Sentinels have turned into after years, you know, you go back to the earliest issues when they were actual threats. And then, you know, then you go back to, then you come to the modern age where, you know, we're, we're blown up Sentinels left and right. It, it, and it's it, a forecast, right? I never realized yes. that. You just mention it now. It's him forecasting that, uh, you know, things are, it's not just us that are going to be upgraded. Right. Yeah. And it, it's so nicely prescient of what we're going to see later on. Right. Because indeed the, the Sentinels are, are harvesting spare parts to make themselves, mm-hmm. but that only makes them actually more dangerous yeah. than less dangerous. And I also love how we have the way they keep Cassandra Nova's head completely hidden throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Oh, sorry, it looks like it's loading up here. But what happens next is the 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 psychic conference between the characters in uh, this kind of like you know psychic powwow they have here. 
I love this. Um, unfortunately, it's loading slow on the screen here, but you guys have your own uh, mm -hmm. issues you can refer to. But what do you think of this scene when they're when they're all sitting in this kind of psychic mindscape? Uh, I liked it. I, I definitely liked the visualization of it with the the background. Um, with the, I'm just bringing it up on my computer now as well. It, with it's, the, a, with the, it's almost like graffiti, right? With the, mm -hmm. the highlighted mm -hmm. science. I don't even know what to call that. Um, like science graffiti, textbook graffiti in the background with um, DNA strands and equations and graphs and maps. But then the chairs in the middle, I think that looks like the perfect kind of mutant teacher's lounge. You know what my thought is, is that this is kind of a way to symbolize that we're in someone's mind because you've got all this information floating around. And then mm. in the, and so I thought that was a good way to kind of visualize the fact that they're in the, the astral plane. Um, it's a cool way to do, because I mean, it's, it's basically a talking head scene. So mm -hmm. I, I, I thought it was a very cool way to make a scene that could otherwise be kind of boring and dry and make it more dynamic and interesting. Yeah. Um, it also makes me wonder like whose headspace they're in, or is this like a collective kind of a headspace that they're talking in right now? And it's I think, a it's, I think no, it's a collective head. I think it's a collective headspace myself. That's um, how I always and, interpret it. And it's a motif that recurs later on in the run too, which mm -hmm. I thought is pretty cool. And I just want to point out that I love Gene's expression at that bottom panel that's sort of hinting at things to come where Scott's like, yeah, we can swing over there. And she's mm -hmm. like, excuse me, excuse mm -hmm. me, Scott, um, excuse me. It's the perfect face, right? When when right, yeah, you're in public and you're having an argument with your partner, mm -hmm. and you're thinking, just wait till everyone leaves. You're gonna, you're gonna get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. right? uh, and and that's something that's a credit to to Quietly's art that he was able to capture so much with just that little face, and not a lot of artists can do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I do. So there's. There's one, I've got kind of a love-hate relationship with this exchange about the costumes where I do like that he came up with this um, this uh, this reason for why they were dressing as superheroes before and now they're not. Like it's a really, it's, a, it's ex, an explanation that really makes sense. Um, you know, when Cyclops says the professor thought people would trust the X-Men if we looked like something they understood. But it is kind of weird to hear Wolverine and Beast you know, making these comments about it, like Wolverine saying, I don't have to look like an idiot in broad daylight when, <laughs> when the costume wasn't even Xavier's that he first had, right. It was that the, the Canadian government gave him. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then beast comment, whereas, you know, beast was an Avenger himself. So it, it is, it's a little out of character looking back on it. But beast beast was an Avenger, but he never really wore a costume. True. True. That's true. I mean, unless you count, I, I think he was in speedos a lot of the time. That yeah, that was if that I was recall his... correctly. His fur is his costume, but that right. goes back yeah. to like, did we really need to know that Beast was an Avenger? No, no, I'm just saying yeah. that within the within the context of the of the of the characters, like it just like I I I, I like the the um the reason he gives here um for why they dress that way, but it's just like the just some of the dialogue here just feels like a little bit out of character is all I'm saying. 
Okay, I felt the opposite. I felt like uh, it, it gave them, it, it brought them into the real world. Like I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, mm. that, you know, it, the X Men are fantastic, but any way that they, any opportunity we have to ground it and make it a bit more realistic, because the themes about socialized social isolation mm -hmm. or feeling like an outcast or um prejudice um that that is all real world themes and the more that they can ground them the better the x-men mm. are and i feel like that really brought the uh the temperature down in terms of theatrics mm -hmm. um so i i guess there's there may be a distinction between like i mean they they had they were wearing those outfits, but I suppose it's possible, like it's necessarily, um, it, it wasn't necessarily a thing that they enjoyed doing. So, mm -hmm. I, so it may be, I think to me, like maybe Logan felt like he was obligated to wear it, but it, I don't know, like, do you get the sense that he did kind of feel ridiculous wearing that? Cause that mm -hmm. seems to be the, what he's saying here, right? Like, yeah i felt so dumb like all that time and now i don't anymore <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i it does this line just jumps out at me the, every time i reread this story like this line just kind of jumps out at me just fe feeling like it just feels i do understand the rationale behind the line um and it's very much a call i think more than anything it's a callback to that line in the first x-men movie mm -hmm. when um when logan's like do we really have to go outside in those things and, and then, you know, and Scott remarks, well, would you prefer yellow spandex? Mm. And so I think that it's, it, it just feels a little bit forced is to me, mm. at least. Um, perhaps, perhaps. I, I, I will concede that it does feel a little bit forced. And I think it's, it was Morrison's way of um, doing what he said in the manifesto, right? Mm -hmm. Like taking yeah. the, the film and, and taking the good parts and injecting it into the, the comics. That they could do it i i think without it feeling forced because he wore that costume for how many years right yeah he's only been wearing yellow spandex for 30 years and then the next day clicks his fingers and wakes up and suddenly he is like oh i must i look mm -hmm. like an idiot it's always going to feel forced in some way but this was like a short sharp way to but you know it's literally just one page yeah and it explains it all we don't have to talk uh, any more about it in the comic it's done right right and i i do feel like um so so uh, comic book companies do this right so like the big movie comes out and then suddenly like the comic version of the character has to look like the movie version right um right. so i guess like there were worse ways in which that was done mm -hmm. um a certain star lord for example um so i was thinking of mystique suddenly getting the scaly skin in the comics i'm glad that did not last very long yeah and, so, um, it did there, not last very long thank yeah goodness. they had a they had an explanation <laughs> for that and um it was in uh x-men forever i think that nisiesa wrote where mm -hmm. she her body was undergoing some sort of new mutation that's what led to that it did seem kind of weird though like uh, we, we we know why they're doing it yeah but yeah. at the same it's like eh, all right i do like this this um this panel too of transitioning away from the psychic landscape back into into reality like with the professor xavier's head fading away i love the way quietly drew that mm -hmm. it it's also a nice update to like uh, you you guys probably recall like like the way that psychics manifest their powers like there's like this weird like bubblegum colored 
thing around their mm-hmm. head. But but now it, the way that it's drawn in this panel makes a lot more sense, right? Because it's like a condensation of the machine and that's why there's a physical manifestation of it. Right. Rather than just like, why is there like bubble gum around going on in Gene's head? Anyway. Well, even with the, going back to the, the psychic, the when they're in the psychic conference too like having these symbols and all that mm-hmm. which is like symbolizing people's thoughts is mm-hmm. a much better way than the astral plane is usually depicted which is usually as like a void with some sort of energy signature behind it mm-hmm. and i also here is a good example of when the the super consistency comes in and morrison referencing stuff that's already happened right uh because wolverine says you've been awol for too long things change sometimes it's hard right that's a reference to the fact that he was being he was possessed by apocalypse for the past year mm-hmm. so yeah that, he says that that's all as a new reader that's all you need to know right you don't need to know about the 12 and apocalypse and cyclops fusing together and cyclops going away and well you don't need to know that all you need to know if you this is the first issue you pick up is that Cyclops has been away, he's gone through some trauma, and now he's back. Yeah. But if you're a longtime reader, it, it has the multi-function of, you know, like, it, it's sort of a, a, a wink and a nod to you, right? Like, so sort of an acknowledgement of, like, all of this is new, but that other stuff still counts, which right. I think is what a lot of comic readers would care about. And I think this is a good way, of, like you think about um, the way the movies do it. This is a this is like an Easter egg, like the, the way they have it in the mm-hmm. movies. So, mm-hmm. like you know, you watch um, you watch Loki and you see the Thanos copter, or you see mm-hmm. you know, or you see Frog Thor in the background. You know, those mm-hmm. are. If you're not a comic reader, you're not going to pick up on those things. But if you are, you're going to be like, look at that, look at that, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is, and I think this is a really good way to do that to reference the continuity in a way that old readers be like, ah, I see what you're doing there. And new readers, mm-hmm. you know, they're just like, oh, he's been gone for a while. Okay. Yeah. It's the right way. It's the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's the right way to get that balance. And that also continues here in uh, this scene with, um, with Jean and Hank, where, you know, she says that, um, uh, she says the professor seems very motivated again, like manic motivated. And B says, you know how people can be when they've survived a lot of pain and tragedy, Gene. He's trying to remind himself what all of it was for. Because this comes right after he had been in space for a while with the mutant scrolls, which was a weird kind of thing to begin with. Um, and then he comes back and then, and then the Brotherhood Mystique comes back in a big way, kills Moira. And then after that, you know, Magneto tries to wage war on humankind. And so again, we just get this very, and Colossus dies as well. So we just get mm-hmm. this very quick reference to those things just by him saying, you know, there's been a lot of pain and tragedy. And he's been engaging in a lot of retail therapy, right. which I think a lot of people can relate to. Oh, also because this takes place after that first Extreme X-Men run. So this is after, mm-hmm. also after Psylocke's death too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the the fact that the way that they they describe what's happening here with you know they give you hints that there's this tension between Gene and Scott, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's very much um, and here we also kind of describe these we get these uh, 
little hints of their character moments, their character relationships. Like this line that Beast mentions says, that's what Logan said in a rare sensitive moment. And then Gene says, well, yeah, that's because I'm the one who told it to him. <laughs> <laughs> and then this scene when Cassandra tries to invade Xavier's mind, like I just love the way this plays out. It's so good. It's it's so, so good. And you've you've we've we've, we've touched on before uh, earlier on about the movement but if you look through the panels of xavier first of all just about to take the the helmet off his head and then bang he's struck and the helmet starts to slowly move and be mm. disjointed off his head as the 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 angle of the the panels zoom closer and closer and closer on his eye right and the eye is like the window to your soul. Right. That's why zooming right in to be like you were going inside him right now, almost as if you were like Cassandra, mm -hmm. zooming straight in. The fragmentation of his speech patterns as well breaks it down, shows you right. straight away that he's mentally struggling to, to overcome. And then he uh, pulls out the gun, mm -hmm. which... Uh, was so jarring i don't know if it would be as jarring now but um when, when we first see xavier pull out a gun mm -hmm. and put it against his head while his nose is bleeding and says get out of my head or i'll fire mm -hmm. that was shocking like i would imagine that um charles xavier would be yeah such an itchy gun person right <laughs> <He'd be> like <laughs> He would be like, you know, no no guns unless you've got a license and, and all of the rest. And suddenly, you know, he's the non-violent advocate. Mm -hmm. And suddenly not only has he got a gun, it's loaded and he's about to blow his brains out. Yeah. That yeah. was shocking, really shocking. It's still shocking now when you look through it. You know, a lot of the X-Men characters don't walk around with guns. You've got Cable, you've got Bishop, and that's that's it. But this gun was not like some fantastical gun. I keep saying the word fantastical, so I can't think of another word to describe it. But this is like a a pistol, just like a handgun any cop would carry, real world, back to the real world grounding of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really visceral and I think amazing. I love that page where he's struggling to get it out and it's uh, scattershot of all these so many different images and it really pushes that there's such a frenetic struggle going on in his brain. And I think visceral is a great word to describe it. And it's such an interesting way to depict a psychic battle. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, before, I mean, it's, when, when you see psychics using their powers or doing their like psychic fighting, like, you know, you can see like intense concentration, but they, they always seem pretty like zen about it. But here it's very like, it's primal, it's visceral. It, there's, he's physically hurting um, from yeah. the attack. And I think it also establishes in a very economical way how big of a deal Cassandra Nova is because, you know, Charles, Charles is the premier psychic on the planet, right? But it seems like he's barely able to fend her off. And the only reason he could do that was he threatens to blow his head off. Yeah. And also talking about the movement, you know, I'm reminded here of, cause you can look at these panels and if there was no dialogue here, you would still understand what's happening completely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And Definitely. I think, I think that's why, um, of, you know, when Marvel did their, their enough set event, when mm -hmm. they did all the silent issues, 
Mm-hmm. Ev- like far and away, everybody said that the new X Men one was like the bet the one that was the most well done out of all of them. For sure, there's no there was it blew the competition out of the water. There's no contest. Yeah, and yeah. and that's because quite because Quitely's such an amazing visual storyteller. I don't know if you guys have read, just to go off topic very slightly, but uh, I don't know if you guys have read the new issue, this is the most recent issue of The Runaways. No. So it's a silent issue as well. And um, I was probably about three quarters of the way through the issue before I realised it was a silent issue. <laughs> and it brought me straight back to the the, the one of Quitely and, and Morrison. I think Quitely's art in that issue really is where it, he started to really shoot and take off. But yeah, not to go yeah. too far ahead in um, in the run, but this scene in particular with his with Xavier pulling out the gun, I think um, I, I echo what you guys have said that it really shows how dangerous Cassandra Nova is. That he's so quickly in you know in just a few seconds ready to end it all in order mm-hmm. to stop her. Um, it shows not only how powerful she is, but also how powerful he is. I also love the the can exploding and then the metal twisting like that again mm-hmm. shows like you know it it feels like like I wrote in my notes it feels like a horror movie when you're yes. when you watch this scene play out and that's what a psychic attack would feel like right it would feel cuz you're you're losing control of your mind you're losing control of what makes you you and that's a terrifying prospect and Morrison quietly do such a good job of showcasing that in just these two pages it's amazing and and I love Gene's line. I mean, not maybe not so much a content, but sort of the the language of it. Like, oh my God, your thoughts are bleeding and torn. Mm-hmm. Like I, what a very um, tactile way to describe what just happened. Right. But also the way that she runs in and she pulls the helmet off. Like, mm-hmm. and again, this is that kinetic quality. I feel like I'm watching her move in these these two panels. And that that probably is not the standard operating procedure either right no disengage yourself from the system which again just highlights like how critical the situation was yeah and also the 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 gun thing too like going back to what oscar was saying like i remember too it's being shocked like holy Mm -hmm. shit xavier's got a gun and he's about to blow his own head off but it's not even just just this moment right because it kind of reframes everything else mm-hmm. like for me it did like how long has he had that has he always had it right yeah has he done it before <laughs> and it, well this can also be kind of a callback to stuff that's happened in the past because you know there was you know the mural isle saga when he had to deal with the shadow king there was the mm-hmm. um there was the whole onslaught thing too so right right it it is kind of like this subtle callback to stuff that's happened before mm-hmm. Or, or yeah, it's kind of interesting to think of it in those terms. Like maybe it's just a reaction to those events, right? Mm-hmm. So like yeah. he doesn't want another onslaught to happen. So now he's going to carry a gun around right? in case. And uh, so here we get the the wild sentinels. Like this is, you know, I love this whole concept. The fact that these, and there's, um, there's such a good, you know, contrast here because with these, um, these, because they're in they're in Ecuador and you know she has this whole reference um let's see where is it here just just going through Cassandra Nova's um voice and the way she talks and the way she's doing this display for for the Trask character mm-hmm. he was uh such a great character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. her her um 
her lines are brilliant and um she I, no one has been able to capture her as well as morrison was even just in this opening issue yeah yeah i i i love and i've been trying to figure it out for and i think i finally have an answer as as to why i love sort of her kind of archaeologist naturalist outfit that she has on here like to me it seems like she's exuding this air of like you know i'm just a scientist i'm just an mm. explorer like i'm just explaining things to you as they really are donald sort of, like this is this it as a, more of a colonialist sort of that, that that's, too that's very good yeah that too um but but the way that she sort of couches it like what she's saying in terms of like like it's almost like a fact like it's a scientific reality without while obscuring like the very problematic problematic is a weak word like the, the horrific sort of moral and ethical implications of what she's asking him to do and mm -hmm. sort of clothing her in this sort of like scientific quote-unquote outfit conveys a lot of that effectively for me and uh, so i found the line i was looking for so this this line she says did you know your tax dollars help fund a shadow sentinel program mr trask and that's a reference again to the, the Operation Wide Awake and the, the, the stuff the government mm -hmm. was doing. But also they tie it into what the CIA has been, you know, fucking around with in Central and South America, where this whole thing about, you know, it was constructed during a lull in the fighting rebel forces, government troops backed by the USA, that sort of thing. Like, you know, working in these superhero concepts and these comic book concepts into real history. I love when the comics are able to do that. Um, I I also love this master mold design mm. where one of its arms is sort of has this kind of it's kind of like a staff type of a thing that it looks like it's holding. It it, it sort of evokes this notion of like it's this de this life giving deity that's sort right of giving birth to all of these creatures, which it kind of is. Mm -hmm. I think uh, just to touch on the the South American politics of the the CIA infiltrating South America and um, you know mucking things up there um, as an American I think you probably have a better perspective of that than than, we, than I do as an Australian but the one thing that I pull from it is that uh, it was one of the other ways that Morrison was able to pull down the fantastic and ground it in reality yeah absolutely you know it, it really gave it this feeling of um realness mm -hmm. that this is a result of what's happening in the real world this is how it's connected to you today and this is how it's connected to everything socio-politics socio-geopolitics um globalism military and this is all another thing i was going to mention earlier and i sort of lost over it that's really important i think is that when this first came out it was 2001 but it was pre 9 11. Mm -hmm. yes yeah. and that really does shape so much of the art and so much of the stories uh -huh. and we'll see it change as 9 11 happens yeah but there was this uh optimism that was in the writing and in the culture and in the world that 
I don't know. I think for me, like 9-11 sort of took that away. Absolutely, we yeah. Do that anymore. And I feel like this was um this touched on that a little bit before it had even happened. Does and that I'm, make sense? No, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And there was a definite shift after 9-11. Um and uh and looking at these, you know, these final pages of this issue. Um, just like I love this idea of the wild sentinels, the fact that they 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 evolve and they they adapt using whatever they can find. So this idea of like you know these these designs are amazing, right? These little chicken sentinels, with the, with the, and then you got mm -hmm. this like this like um, scorpion serpent like sentinel as well. Like it's just it's such a it totally reinvents the concept. And one of the I think one of the the biggest Kind of disappoint. I don't want to say disappointment. Maybe kind of letdown is that we didn't see more of these wild sentinels because it's such an awesome idea. I agree. Um, I agree. And I think one thing about the sentinels here, and I, I don't know what exactly. I wouldn't be able to articulate exactly how he was able to capture it, but I, I think the word evolution is really good in that we've seen things like with the X Men previously with Operation Zero Tolerance, or mm -hmm. where people became sentinels and they changed, mm -hmm. and so like new generation sentinels they mentioned like with donald pierce and, and and all and where they their arms fall off and they just stick them back on or something like that but this felt like an evolution mm -hmm. of sentinels rather than just oh this is a new version and i don't know what the difference between a new version and an evolution is but this is it you know what i think it might be is that it's kind of like a devolution in a way because the sentinels are becoming more animal-like they're becoming further removed from humanity Perhaps, perhaps. Well, it, it, it's deconstructive, right? Mm -hmm. So he sort of, he took it down to their base parts and then put them back together in these kind of very interesting and extremely creepy configurations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you have your Nimrods and you have your Omega Sentinels. But I think at the end of the day, they're still very much recognizable as like, oh, it's, it's an evil robot, super villain right. thing. Whereas these things are are weird and they're strange and they're creepy and they're mm -hmm. bug-like, yeah. right? And it creates all those kinds of evocations in your head. Like, ugh. Like, you know, again, I think visceral is a great word because it's like, mm -hmm. ugh, I, I, ugh. Like, I just have an instant, like the things coming out of its back, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I just have this reaction. Oh, it's like a spider. I, it's weird looking at it. And it is. I, fucking cool. It is. They, it yeah. is. It is. Um, and I was going to say, like, I know it, it's sad we didn't see more of them, but I think they do a pretty good showing in this initial arc. I, I think mm -hmm. they 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 have some S up um, by the time this arc is over. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do. They, they're used very effectively in this mm -hmm. run. I just wish we, we saw more of them after this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and, you know, going back to what you know, Oscar was saying about, you know, how the Sentinels had evolved in the past. Like, it was always about them becoming more human. And mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of, you know, weird, this may sound weird, but stick with me, uh, but Alien 3, right? The movie Alien 3. Whereas in the first two Alien movies, you had the Xenomorphs, they burst out of humans. So they had these very human-like qualities. But in mm -hmm. the third movie, it came out of an animal. And so it was a very different kind of alien. And it was much kind of like, it, it was much, it was, it was like harder to catch because of that. And I get kind of a similar, I, it's kind of a similar idea here because these, 
these sentinels are very different because they're they're much more like animals and they've evolved in the wild. Yeah, I think the, the animals is is where that, that that's what makes it the difference between the new generation and mm -hmm. evolution, right? Because a new generation that's with your iPhone or with your computer or with your television or I don't know any kind of like technology. But evolution is what we use to describe the biosphere mm -hmm. and a natural environment. And this takes the, the technological and then turns it into a natural evolution as well, which is scary, right? Because you have no control over it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what made it maybe even look a little bit more dangerous. No one could really control it. It was going to just be wild and free and then who knows and, what would happen. And unpredictable, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't, and I think that's true by the time we get to like part three, like you had no idea of the scale that that this kind of development could lead to with yeah. the Sentinels. Like you, we had no idea. And also I love this scene when we first see Cassandra without, a, without any sort of head covering, right? And you see her with the bald head and, you know, she's a female Xavier and you're like, wait a minute. What's, I remember thinking at the time, what is what is this? What, why, why does she look exactly like Xavier? Mm -hmm. I remember thinking she's a clone. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a clone. That's oh, another clone story. <laughs> I hate clone stories. And I remember thinking like, oh God, here we go. Someone's tried to clone Xavier and made, it a, made, made the clone a female. Mm -hmm. But either way, she looks creepy. Yes. Yes. And um, and it also that and talking about the creepy thing, like I love that little panel that Quietly had of her mouth when she's invading Xavier's mind, right? Just that, like that little smile she has on her face and that one close up, like it's he's he's really like you like uh, one of you mentioned before that he's he's really good at expressions like that. Mm -hmm. And I love this last page, like even this master mold, like even this master mold, right? It it feels kind of organic. Like there's something about the way he texturizes the lines, they're kind of uneven, they're kind of jagged, but they've still got kind of this uniform mechanical quality. It's a really amazing amount of detail he puts in this. And I, I mentioned it before, but I just love that that circular thing that it's holding. Mm -hmm. Like it, it just really gives it sort of this creepy, like tribal um, aesthetic to it. Yeah. Um, and I sort of have this headcanon about that's where the that's where it's controlling the other ones. Like that's sort of where the signal is coming from. Mm -hmm. Like I just really love that that little addition that he had there. Yeah, it's funny you guys mentioned that because I had never noticed that um, that was that it was even holding something before. I yeah, was always, yeah, I never really noticed that until Patrick mentioned it either. Yeah, I was always looking more towards the wild sentinels at the at the bottom of the the, the page. Mm -hmm. One thing I just want to mention about this, this particular issue, and I've been thinking about it a lot while we've been preparing for this podcast, is that um, I was going through thinking how much of an impact and how big this issue, well, perhaps more broadly, this first three issue arc, mm -hmm. but this issue in particular was um, seismic in terms of the X-Men. I think yeah. it's something we, we should really touch on a little bit before we, we, we finish this one. Um, but when I look at all the, you know, the X-Men issue one, obviously it's the start of it all. And it's the start of the, the idea of mutants just being born mutants and experiencing their mutation during teenage years. Everyone, every teenager feels like a mutant at some stage. Mm -hmm. Then you had giant size 
X-Men with Claremont reinvigorating the team and turning them um, That was Wayne. Wayne and Cockrum. And oh, okay. Wayne and Cockrum, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, then there was sort of nothing until this. This was the next big one. I, think, I feel like we're currently going through that with the Krakoa era, mm-hmm. but this was the next one. I think- Although I, I would add, though, like the Claremont Jim Lee before this one. I think I, I would add, um, it is a big shift, but it was a shift backwards. Mm. Is, whereas I think I would add in the, um, when they ended up in, in Australia, when they, when they appeared in the Outback, because that was a big shift as well. Mm-hmm. And that was like a, the, the first real massive change that the X-Men had experienced since uh, Giant Size. And then after that, there was like, the Jim Lee stuff, that was, you know, X-Men number one, that was a shift backwards. That was going back to basics, going back to the mansion. Xavier's mm-hmm. back. The original X-Men are back. Everybody's together in the mansion. Uh, Magneto's back. So that was all going back to basics. But but between the Australian one, between the Outback, them ending up in the Outback, and this, I think this was, this was the big shift after the Outback. The only thing I would say, that the only argument that I would have uh, to go against you there um, is that I feel like what, what what have we got that's left over from the Outback era? What lasting changes have come from that era? Okay, so you're talking uh, about in terms of lasting. I was just thinking in terms of how much it changed the status quo at the time. No, I'm thinking about not only just changing the status quo, but like changing it forever. Okay, yeah, in that well, case, you're right. Every summer, they're like, this story is going to change the X-Men forever. And you know, it never really does, but mm-hmm. I feel like this actually led up to its promise and it really has changed it. And the current um, Krakoa era has done the same thing. Whether Krakoa stays on forever or not, I don't know, but um, this was definitely, it's one of the, the, the top five biggest issues of the X-Men that's ever mm-hmm. been made. Um, I, I guess just to go back to your Australian question for a minute, like, would you count? Because I believe at the end of it, they went through the siege perilous, yeah. right? Which resulted in like I, I, some lasting changes. At least, at the very least, I think for Betsy, like that definitely um, led to a, a long-term change for her. But but back to this issue, I do agree with what Oscar is saying. Like even you know when we conclude this run, like I I think a lot of that of everything that happened after this either carries on the themes that were introduced here or is mm-hmm. like a reaction to it. Like yeah. it's reaches far, it's very far, far after it was over. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so any other final thoughts about New X-Men 114? Um, I, oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Oscar. No, no, you go, you go, you go. Um, I, it was a great debut. Um, I I think Morrison and Quietly managed to do a lot of stage setting and establishing a lot of dense status quo mm-hmm. in a very economical way that did not at all feel very downloady. Like it, it just very, I mean, it established a lot of things without doing a lot of data dumping for the reader, which I thought is, it's a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I echo that sentiment as well. It was not a lot of exposition in, in the issue. Um, it, it introduced everything very, very subtly in some ways. Like you don't actually have 
a big X-Men shot. There's no big fight. There's no, um, there's nothing like that. It's just a nice introduction. The only thing I would say is that my memory of reading it first, I hated the art. And I thought, wow, the story is really good because Cassandra Nova and her um, her voice was terrifying mm. and articulate and it really did start to show the big themes of evolution. And um, it, I was excited to read the next issue. Um, and I, I would also just add, like, I, I mean, I, I was an X-Men fan for a very long time before this issue came out, but I think this was the first issue where I felt emboldened enough to to talk up this thing with my friends Mm -hmm. and people I know that know nothing about the comics I think this was the first issue where I was like you really need to read this like you need to read this this is the issue that I say to people who don't read comics if you want Mm -hmm. to read an X-Men comic start with this one Mm -hmm. right yeah um uh, basically the same thing you guys said like this was and I had been reading X-Men for you know, several years by the time that this issue came out, but it had become more of a habit by that point, mm-hmm. right? Like it was just like, okay, well, it's, you know, it's that time of month, I'm going to buy the new X-Men comics. And it was just kind of like, you know, I, I was, you know, collecting single issues. I was, I was a completionist, right? I was collecting mm-hmm. them just because you wanted that complete run. But this was the first time in a long time that I can remember being really excited, right? When I got to the end of the issue, like, I want to know what happens next. Yeah, it's a, if, if I could be allowed to extend that metaphor a bit longer, mm-hmm. like I think habitual is, the, is such a great way to capture it. Like I, the, the contrast for me before and after this run started is sort of like, you know, going through the motions of this thing that you do and it's become so rote and routine. Right. But when this came out, it's like, you know, having sort of that comic version of a water cooler talk at work. Mm-hmm. every every time it came out yeah and it was kind of like when especially when you see these wild sentinels at the end like for the first time in years i can remember thinking what is going to happen next because up until that point mm-hmm. you're like okay well you know what's going to happen next even mm-hmm. if the stories are good you still know how they're going to end you still know what the beats are going to be but this felt like something different mm-hmm. definitely it did feel like something different it felt exciting it felt fresh it felt real world mm-hmm. and um, it felt grown up Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It felt grown up. This wasn't the Saturday morning cartoon X-Men. This was adult X-Men. More so even than the movie, right? This was even more adult Indeed. than the movie. Indeed. I, I agree. I, I definitely think that. Definitely. And I used to, um, I used to, when I'd get my comic books from the newsagents, I would uh, put them in my backpack, my school backpack before I left the store because I didn't want anyone to see me being nerdy and buying comic yeah. books. But um, this was a comic book you could be proud of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. All right, well, um, that's a perfect note to end this on, I think. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, guys, do you have anything you wanted to, I forgot to mention the last episode, but if you have any sort of online presence or anything you want to you wanna promote about yourselves or where people um, can find you? I'm actually also part of another pat podcast um, called Krakoan Exports that is we're focusing more on the current Hickman era. Um, coincidentally, we started recording pretty close to when we started. So um, uh, we'll have some uh, uh, information on when it's released. Um, but I just wanted to uh, get that out there. Okay, great. Oscar, how about you? 
I don't. I don't. This is my first foray into uh, the podcast world. I'm excited and looking forward to developing it further. But um, as, as of yet, nothing nothing in the, the pipe works for now. Okay. All right. Uh, for my part, I also host a podcast called Superhero Cinephiles. So where we talk about superhero movies. And um, if you're interested in Japanese film too, I have a, another podcast called Japan on Film. Um, and I'm also an author. My stuff is available at percivalconstantine.com. And if you want to know more about this podcast, we're Morrison XPod on Twitter and Instagram, uh, e for Revolution podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us any comments, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you, you listen to these shows. And our website is eforevolution.transistor.fm. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time when we continue with E is for Extinction Part 2, which is New X-Men number 115. E for Evolution, examining Grant Morrison's X-Men, is produced by Percival Constantine with theme music by Aaron Kenny. Audio of Grant Morrison and Stan Lee was recorded at San Diego Comic-Con 2008 and provided by bravogabo.livejournal.com. You can find E for Evolution on Twitter and Instagram at MorrisonXPod and on the web at eforevolution.transistor.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email address is eforevolutionpodcast at gmail.com. Support the show by leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, which helps us reach more listeners. Special thanks to the members of the House of X Facebook group for their encouragement in getting this show started. Thank you.